Hey everyone, this is Nico. Before you listen to this episode, just a quick disclaimer, there are some audio issues with it. I've tried my best to fix them, but I just wanted to let you know going into it, it's not up to my usual audio quality standards. Also, you can also watch this episode in video form with some accompanying graphics if you're interested in that. The link to the YouTube channel where you can find it on is in the podcast description under the link tree. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get this started. The University of Illinois has a wide and expansive history. And of course, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to cover all of it. So for today, I've decided to make a iceberg, which if you don't know, is a popular way to display information from least to most obscure, and go into some of the most interesting things I have found and I know about UIUC's history. Of course, I'm not gonna be able to cover everything and everything I do cover won't be able to go into too much detail, but I hope that this is an interesting experience and that you learn something new about the University of Illinois. As always, the sources are available in the podcast or video description. And with that being said, let's get right into it. It therefore seems to me most important that you, the people of the state of Illinois, should know your university. Is it doing what you want it to do as the people's university? You are the owners, and your decision is final, 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 final. Learning and labor, labor. For the people and by the people. The People's University. So here is the full U of I history iceberg. It has various different concepts on it, and on the side you can see the older and older photos of alma mater. Although, of course, everything included here is not necessarily further back in time just because it is further low on the iceberg, although there is somewhat of a correlation as time passes and things become more obscure. Anyway, the full picture is available in the video description, so let's go ahead and dive in to level one. These are going to be some of the most well-known concepts uh, relating to U of I's history, and where's a better place to start than with alma mater itself? It's one of the, if not the most iconic locations on campus. The statue sculpted by Laredo Taft is the site of so many different events around the U of I, so many different protests and programming from the university that it's really hard to miss if you're ever on campus. But one interesting thing about the history of Alma Mater is that it wasn't always in its current location. It was actually originally behind Fullinger Hall. And it was moved to where it is now on Green Street, one of the most prominent commercial streets, and Wright Street on that corner in 1962. And this was actually quite controversial at the time, and Daily Illini suggested that it was in the worst possible taste. It makes Alma a debased commercial advertisement for the university. So interestingly enough, the current iconic location of Alma has not been that way always, and it's also been a very uh, controversial move. Alma Mater also underwent renovation recently in 2014, and since then it has continued to serve as an iconic campus landmark, with the main Alma Mater statue in the center and the figures, learning and labor, right behind it. And that perfectly segues us to the next topic, learning and labor, which is the official motto of the University of Illinois. And of course, there's a little bit of history behind it. So if you look at the top of this hailing gateway uh, structure, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later on the U of I campus, you can see that the motto is here present at the top of it. 
and it symbolizes an important historical period uh, in the University of Illinois and around its founding. Specifically, the learning symbolizes the more abstract liberal arts concepts, whereas the labor symbolizes the more industrial education that was prevalent at, and pushed for at the time, which we'll get into a bit more later. And actually, the original president of UIUC, John Milton Gregory, was the one who uh, originated the phrase. This was actually kind of controversial at the time because Gregory pushed a more liberal arts-orientated campus, whereas many actually felt that it would be better to focus more on the industrial, the agricultural, the more practical elements of education. Okay, so now that we've tackled the learning and labor motto and talked about the first U of I president, let's move on to the next item of the iceberg. So this is probably one of the first really controversial elements of U of I's history, and I think it's uh, important that it's covered here. It's one of the most well-known uh, as well, and uh, that is, of course, the chief, the former mascot of the University of Illinois. The chief originates in 1926. It was used in sporting events, often uh, performing with someone dressed up, uh, performing a dance at halftime, and this depiction uh, was not really based on any actual indigenous practices. It was really based on like uh, Old Western and Boy Scout traditional dances. So this was a, from the beginning a, a complete appropriation of Native American culture and uh, according to basically any major Native American groups has been a quite racist depiction since then. Uh, so naturally there's been a lot of opposition to the chief uh, for a very long time. There's many different ways this opposition has manifested. Uh, even before the chief officially became the symbol of UIUC in 1990. This has included student government resolutions, even U.S. senators like Paul Simon signing against it, and vocal opposition from uh, organizations such as the National Indian Education Association. When the chief was put up to become the official symbol in 1990, both student trustees voted against it becoming the mascot. But of course, the student trustees don't have enough voice to actually make that change. Another important turning point was a documentary in whose honor, which was a very uh, good explanation of a lot of different racist sports mascots. But the final nail in the coffin that really uh, ended the use of the chief at U of I was with the NCAA's involvement. Just like it started around sports, the sports organization really is what took it down. And the NCAA concluded that the chief has been used more increasingly, but there's also been a large amount of detractors to it, and it is considered a demeaning interpretation of Native American customs and traditions. So the NCAA banned important games from being hosted at the University of Illinois, and this was kind of the reason why the administration finally decided to react, because they were going to lose these sporting rights. So uh, these days we don't have an official mascot, although we do have a movement to make the Kingfisher a official mascot. The goal of this is to create a mascot that isn't, uh, and a school identity that isn't referring to these racist practices. We're going to have to wait and see to know whether or not the Kingfisher will become officially adopted as the U of I mascot, or whether we will remain mascotless for the time being. But either way, let's go ahead and move on to the next part of the iceberg. So yet another very controversial period, this one starting a little bit more recently in the university's history, is the unhiring of Steven Salida. So Steven Salida was a professor, continues to be an author and scholar, 
and he was offered a tenured position to accept an associated professor appointment in the American Indian Studies Department at U of I. This happened in 2014, and for context, the timeline is that the fall term begins on August 25th, and the board meets to confirm appointments, kind of usually a rubber stamp, on September 11th. So basically, uh, while Salida was already uh, quit from his previous job and had been uh, effectively uh, started his, his work, he was notified that actually he wouldn't be working there and that the chancellor of U of I was going to recommend that the board not approve his appointment. So why did this happen? Most important context to this is just like today, there was another escalation in violence coming from Israel towards the Palestinian people at this time. And this 2014 war in Gaza would eventually leave over 2,300 Palestinians killed with over 10,600 wounded. And Salida, who is of Palestinian and Jordanian descent, tweeted about this situation and his tweets were considered to be too inflammatory. Uh, one of the more controversial statements he was making were crit critical of the way anti-Semitism was being weaponized towards those who supported the Palestinian people. So this was a huge issue and huge scandal, very controversial for academic freedom, especially when it was revealed that the donors were likely to have had a large influence on uh, Phyllis Wise's decision. So it prompted a large backlash and eventually uh, Chancellor Wise was forced to resign. And uh, following a lawsuit, Salida earned $875,000 as a result of this controversial unhiring, since technically he wasn't fired, but he wasn't ever hired, even though he was told he was going to be. All right, so to wrap up the first layer of our iceberg, I'm gonna talk about the idea of U of I as a land-grant institution. The term land-grant refers primarily to the first land-grant act known as the Morrill Act of 1862. It created public universities in every state with funding coming from the sale of land. And often the land-grant act is associated with the idea of public service and meeting the needs of everyone. This has led to public universities in almost every state today, with the University of Illinois being the only one in Illinois to have benefited from the initial land-grant act. That's all we're going to say about the land-grant act for right now. We will come back to it deeper in the iceberg, though. So let's get started with level two then. This one is going to include items that require a little bit more digging, uh, but you've maybe heard of them if you've at least skimmed the Wikipedia page for U of I. And this will probably be one of the shorter sections as a lot of these things don't require a lot of context to explain, but they are still, I think, pretty interesting to learn about U of I's history. The first of which is the idea that UAUC wasn't always called UAUC. In fact, originally, U of I was called Illinois Industrial University. Now, this eventually would change. Uh, in 1885, it went from Illinois Industrial University to just the University of Illinois. Uh, the idea of Illinois as a quote-unquote industrial university was associated too much with the original Morrill Act and the idea of like manual labor and stuff like that, so it was decided it should just be simplified and changed. And then... Uh, later on, uh, you know, obviously there are now multiple campuses at the University of Illinois, and they had to differentiate them. So generally, they would mostly refer to this uh, campus as the Urbana campus, uh, sometimes the Champaign campus, but eventually they uh, decided that they needed a more standardized naming system. 
and uh, a formal one as well. There was proposals to make every university in Illinois, uh, from Carbondale to Normal to Champaign and Urbana to Chicago, all have the same naming functions, but that didn't end up happening. However, they did standardize the few universities already within the official University of Illinois system and uh, took that idea and applied it to Urbana and Champaign, creating what we have today as UIUC, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So that brings us to the next item, which is about the oldest building on campus. The Mumford House, which was originally known as the Farm House, is a small white house located on the southern quad on the U of I campus. It was part of a southern expansion built in 1870, and it is named after Herbert Mumford, the dean of the UIUC College of Agriculture. Mumford, as well as other campus administrators such as Thomas Burrell, Eugene Davenport, and George Murrow, all lived there while they were working on campus. And Mumford specifically lived there from 1902 to 1938. During this time, he entertained many friends and scholars at the house, and it served as a nice place for the higher-ups to live while they were on campus. Next, we have the Morrow Plots. If you've ever taken a tour to U of I or just spent time on the campus, you might have heard that this is a really dangerous place to go, and that if you're a student, you'll be expelled if you go on there. I definitely heard that on my first college tour. And while that may, may or may not be true, there are a lot of interesting things about Morrow Plots. It's the oldest experimental crop field in America and the second oldest in the world. It's named after the first agriculture dean, George S.B. Morrow, who, like I mentioned, lived in the Mumford House. And it was and continues to be an important site for agricultural experimentation on things like crop rotation and other topics. So next on our list is the idea of Altgeld's castles. There are a bunch of castle-like structures across the Illinois campuses, including at U of I, although Altgeld Hall at U of I is a little bit of a different architectural style. It's not quite as much like a castle. And they're all named after the governor of Illinois, John Peter Altgeld. You can learn more about Altgeld and why the castles are in a different style, as well as his life, if you listen to episode 2 of the podcast. But there's a lot more to this story and a lot more history that goes into this building. But one of the interesting ideas is that all of the castles are actually secretly connected and there's like different passages you can take between them if you were to connect them all in one giant castle. Uh, this probably isn't true, but it is a fun idea that uh, is perpetuated about the Altgeld Halls and other inspired castles on Illinois college campuses. So our next item is University Hall and Alina Union. Alina Union is one of the most important spaces for students on campus. It's where a lot of student services and organizations are housed, but it wasn't always there. And where it used to stand was a building called University Hall. As of right now, there is only one structure that remains from University Hall, which is the Hailing Gateway I mentioned earlier. It used to be on the entrance to the building, and now it just stands alone on another part of campus. The University Hall had a lot of amenities for students. It had classrooms, it had places to study, it even had a classical museum full of sculptures. But one issue with the building was its physical condition. It was in quite poor shape, 
and it had to eventually be torn down with the Alina Union being built in its place. Okay, now let's move down to level 3. Some of these things are going to get a little bit more obscure. I've heard some of them come up in conversation, but I think a lot of people may not know about them. With that being said, let's get started with the first item, which is the idea that activism won the cultural houses. So as the U of I campus became more diverse, minority students naturally wanted a space for themselves on the majority white campus. And over the years, students organized and demanded the establishment of cultural houses. And there's been several of them established since this time. The Bruce D. Nesbitt African American Cultural Center originates in 1969. If you're watching the video, you can see what this looks like today. And La Casa Cultural Latina originates from 1974. Native American House dates to 2002. The Asian American Cultural Center originates in 2005. And most recently, Salam, the Middle East and North Africa Cultural Center, was created just this year. So a lot of these cultural houses will recognize on their own website the important role of student activism. But one thing you might not know is that these struggles have not always been easy. In fact, they've at times turned violence. In 1992, a protest for, which had many demands uh, relating to Latino Latina students on campus, but included more funding for the cultural house, was violently suppressed by the police. And throughout uh, U of I's history, there hasn't just been this simplistic idea of the administration, you know, granting cultural houses to the students that are well-funded and supported, but students have actually had to struggle to make this happen and extract these wins from the university. So I want to include this on the iceberg as kind of an important point to understand how that dynamic has worked over history and how it's been the students organizing that has really led to this. So next on our list, we have Wasaja. At a young age, Wasaja was captured and sold, and eventually he was raised by Carlo Gentile, who gave him the name Carlos Montezuma. Eventually, he ended up in Urbana and attended UIUC, and he ended up being the first Native American graduate of UIUC. He was also one of the first Native Americans in the country to earn a medical degree, and would go on to become a doctor and activist and advocate for Native Americans. While he worked in the Bureau for Indian Affairs as a physician, he was really disappointed with the way that Native Americans were being treated, and he went on to publicly advocate for better treatment of Native Americans by the U.S. government and Bureau of Indian Affairs. In fact, when his own Yavapai tribe faced removal from their ancestral home, he went to Washington, D.C. to fight for them and secured their land and water rights, setting a precedent for other Indian nations. In 2016, a residence hall opened on the U of I campus named after him. The next item on our iceberg is 100 years of connection to China. So as many people might know, U of I has a very large Chinese student population, and this connection actually goes back a long ways. President of U of I, Edmund James, was a big part of the initiative to bring more Chinese students to campus, and this included men and women. And between 1911 and 1920, UIUC educated one-third of all Chinese students in the U.S. This has continued to this era with a very high number of Chinese students here on campus, and many Chinese people educated by UIUC went on to have very important roles across the world, including back in China. 
In fact, uh, Lo Quan Che, who was a U of I student in the class of 1924, went on to become a civil engineer and helped construct a lot of the airports built in China before World War II, before later helping destroy them as a part of the effort to thwart the Japanese invasion. And to this day, U of I continues to have a very large Chinese student population, but I thought it was important to bring up the idea that this is not a new development, and there's actually a lot of interesting history in this story. Next, we have the clout scandal. So the clout scandal happened in 2009, and essentially it entailed allegations that were supported by strong evidence uh, that students with more quote-unquote clout were admitted over others. Essentially, it created a special Category 1 for students with powerful sponsors. This had far-reaching consequences. In fact, the chancellors and the president of the University of Illinois both resigned. Uh, Joseph White was the president at the time, and Richard Herman was the chancellor. The scandal showed that U of I was benefiting the well-connected and wealthy, and it did not look good forcing these resignations. So next on our list is the first Hillel. So as you might know, the Hillel organization is a Jewish student organization here on the U of I campus and on hundreds of sites across the world. But the origins of this organization actually date back right here to U of I. The First Hillel Foundation was founded by Benjamin Frankel, who was a rabbi, in 1923. And he would go on to become a national director of the Hillel organization as it expanded to 11 locations by 1935 and continued to expand in the following decades. And now there is 550 U.S. sites and 56 international locations of the Hillel Foundation. Alright, let's go a level deeper now, to level 4. We're now getting to the point where it's mostly things that people don't know unless they go out of their way to learn about the history of the campus. So the first thing on this level is when there were only women on campus. So there wasn't literally only women on campus, but during the Second World War, there was a pretty massive shift in the campus demographics, and it went from about three to one men on campus to about one to four women on campus in a very short period. This was a pretty dramatic change on campus and changed campus life in many different ways, which I don't have time to totally get into here. But I did want to play one clip, which I think is, provides an interesting example of what life was like. How did, the, how did the DI wind up? I guess at one point there were four women managing in the management positions of the paper? Uh, well, yes, we had all women. All women. At one point. Mm -hmm. um, we had a woman sports editor, Jill Drum. Huh. Uh, the business manager was a woman. And then all the editorial staff uh, were women. Throughout a lot of UIC's history, the student body as well as the workers on campus were predominantly male. But that wasn't always true. And I thought it would be interesting to highlight how things were dramatically different, at least for a short time during the Second World War. Next, we have the idea that U of I began with a bidding war. So the decision of where to place U of I was not an easy one. And many other locations other than Champaign County wanted to host the university, including Bloomington, Jacksonville, and Lincoln. But... Eventually, what ended up sealing it is just traditional political wheeling and dealing. The 14th Million book in the U of I's library, which 
goes over the history of the University of Illinois, put it like this in its introduction. The University of Illinois was not born with an educator's vision, but with a political deal sealed by roll call vote in the old Illinois state capitol. So this item, as well as the next one, kind of deal with a little bit of myth-busting of the kind of founding ideals of the University of Illinois. The idea to have the university, as we will get into next one, was not just based on the benign principles of the Land-Grant Act. And as we have discussed just now, the decision to base the university specifically in Champaign County was also a little bit more complicated than just picking a good location. It was whatever was politically convenient for the Illinois legislature at that time. Next, we have U of I being a land grab institution. So this is intended to contrast with the idea of a land grant institution. And it's kind of an alternative perspective on the founding of the university, which I explore in episode one of the podcast. But if you didn't listen to that, basically what this means is that indigenous land was the land that was being sold to finance the beginning of the university. And this is essentially what could be described as a land grab. This was land that was stolen by the US government from indigenous people and eventually distributed to higher education through the Morrill Act. This reframing provides a different perspective for how we think about UIUC acting as a land-grant institution, and I hope makes people think a little bit more about what we owe to the indigenous people whose land was used to fund this university. Next, we have when streetcars cross the quad. So this one represents the idea that streetcars once went through the U of I quad, and it's true, they, they did. In the late 1800s, there was an electric streetcar network that went across Urbana and Champaign, and it lasted until the rise of cars and eventually public transport shifting over to buses. So it went all across town, and it even passed right through the main quad on the U of I campus. I think it's pretty interesting to think about what that would have been like and the completely different experience that campus was like in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So next we have the president from UIUC. U of I has many famous alumni, including many in prominent political roles. One of the most interesting to me is Rafael Correa, who served as the president of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. He isn't the only head of state or government that has been from U of I. There has been prime ministers of Georgia and Egypt, as well as the president of the Philippines that have graduated from the university. But to me, Correa is the most interesting case. Correa studied economics at the University of Illinois, and by all accounts, he very much enjoyed his time here. And surprisingly, unlike many other people who get educated in American universities, he went on to become a very left-wing leader of the government, including taking many positions that went against the United States. So I thought that this example, because of that, was one of the most interesting prominent political figures to come from the University of Illinois because of this very different trajectory. Alright, so let's go a level deeper into level 5. So at this point we're really starting to descend into obscurity in terms of the history of this campus, and I'd assume that many of you have not heard of these things at level 5 and of course the level below it. 
So the first item on our list here is when someone firebombed the armory. With very prominent student movements against the Vietnam War, there was a lot of protest, and this included against the University of Illinois, which had a lot of connections and continues to this day to have a lot of connections to arms and defense contractors. So during this time, campus was heavily patrolled by the National Guard, and there was a lot of mass uprisings, including a giant protest on the Quad and on Green Street. So during this period, there was also some, uh, as the title alludes to, firebombings on campus. And these were basically makeshift Molotov cocktail kind of attempts to damage the buildings. Uh, as far as I understand, there wasn't any documented perpetrators of this, and it isn't totally clear who did it. But it's associated uh, with the Vietnam protest era. So these weren't just confined to the armory. In January of 1970, someone tossed a firebomb into the Champaign Police Department and injured one officer. In February of that year, someone firebombed the armory lounge, although they didn't injure or damage anything. And on March 1st of 1970, someone attempted to start a fire and explosion in Altgeld Hall, although it was discovered by a librarian before anything went off and nothing ended up exploding. So while there wasn't a great deal of damage or injuries from these attacks, they did really make an impact on the campus at the time and really set the context for the period, which was noted by very massive public demonstrations against the Vietnam War and the draft. And I thought it was worthwhile to include them in this iceberg. So the next item on our list is Bill Clinton getting stuck in the mud. This one's a bit more silly, but basically Bill Clinton and Al Gore visited UIUC for a speech in 1998, and this was actually a very like important time in Bill Clinton's presidency. It was seven days after the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, two days after he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, and just one day after his State of the Union address. What ended up happening is that the right wheel of Air Force One got stuck in the mud at Willard Airport, and he had to transfer to another plane. Both the speech on campus and the more amusing plane getting stuck in the mud, I think, are interesting little artifacts of U of I's history during this time. He said, let's stop arguing about the left and the right and move forward toward a better day for our country. So another fairly obscure element of U of I's history is UIUC's KKK chapter. Yes, the university had a Ku Klux Klan organization in the early 1900s. The university's Ku Klux Klan chapter was founded sometime in between the initial popularity of the first Ku Klux Klan and the second Ku Klux Klan, which came later in the 1900s. It was founded sometime around 1906 or 1908 and became an RSO in 1915. For those who don't know, RSO means Register Student Organization. But it wasn't a normal RSO. It had a representative from each fraternity on campus, and as you might expect, all members were white males. There is some debate about whether this organization was actually formally associated with the infamously racist Ku Klux Klan. Obviously, they did share a name, but there wasn't a formal organizational connection as there wasn't really a prominent national KKK during this time. And the time that this organization existed is really when the KKK was starting to get popular again. There was books about it in the early 1900s, and in 1950, Birth of a Nation was released, which was a film that was massively popular 
and was uh, supportive of the KKK. Some members of the U of I KKK have claimed they have no connection to this hateful organization, and some university archivists have made this claim as well. And in 1923, they changed their name and would go on to die out as a fraternity in the decades after. There is still a lot of questions about this organization and whether or not the idea that they didn't have any relationship to the larger national KKK is accurate or not, as it would, of course, not look good for the U of I to have such an organization, especially when members of it went on to hold prominent university positions. So it's not 100% confirmed, but I personally am more inclined to believe that an organization sharing the same name probably had some similar sympathies to the racist KKK we all know. Regardless of the exact details of the UIUC institution, this example on the iceberg shows an important part of U of I's history and how it has changed from the past. So you may have heard of William McKinley, the U.S. president. You may have also heard of the McKinley Health Center and other items named after a McKinley on campus. But this is actually not named after the U.S. president, William McKinley, but actually another William McKinley. William B. McKinley was a railway magnate, a U of I trustee, and a politician serving in Congress in both the House and the Senate. He was, for a few years, the owner of the streetcar company, which had franchise to operate in Champaign and Urbana. And while he eventually sold the streetcar company, he would still remain involved in the industry. So the McKinley Health Center that you know today isn't named after William McKinley, the president, but William McKinley, the senator. Both men were Republican politicians operating in the late 1800s and early 1900s but they are different figures, and that's a little bit of who William B. McKinley is. There's been a lot of other controversial moments where faculty were no longer allowed to work on campus. Specifically, there's two firings I think are interesting to explore, although they are both very different, uh, motivated for different reasons. And I just want to be clear, I'm not trying to draw an equivalence between these two cases. I think the reason they're so interesting is because they're motivated by totally different things. So to first start off with, there is Leo Koch, who in 1960 was fired because he wrote a column saying it was okay to have premarital sex, especially considering the fact that there are contraceptives available. This sentiment was not something that university president David Dodds Henry agreed with, and he proclaimed that Koch's views were contrary to the commonly accepted standards of morality. So he was fired. And there was a lot of outcry and backlash among this because, you know, this was 1960, but at the same time, a lot of people understood that, first of all, that a lot of people agreed with Coke and thought that it was okay to have sex before you got married. And also a lot of people just thought it was a violation of academic freedom. Uh, this got to the point where there was even an effigy of David Henry, the university president, uh, hung in front of the YMCA on campus. So the other example, like I said, is completely different. Kenneth Howell, who was a religious studies teacher on Catholicism, sent out an email in 2010 declaring homosexuality to be immoral. And he said this was just part of his religious uh, Catholic beliefs. And, you know, when he's teaching, he made clear that he, you know, believes in these Catholic statements, but they're also just trying to educate people on the Catholic doctrine. 
Several students objected to this and said that his statement was hate speech and the university agreed with them, saying that it violated university standards of inclusivity. So in 2010, he was fired. So those two firings, I think, provide an interesting contrast to different reasons and different controversies the University of Illinois has had over the years. With that being said, let's dive deeper to the lowest level on the iceberg, level six. The first thing on this is yet another scandal with the university. This one is the Spalding embezzlement scandal. In the 1890s, Charles Spalding was the treasurer of the University of Illinois, and he was also the president of the Global Savings Bank. At one point after the 1893 recession, the Global Savings Bank closed down. It was found out that $400,000 of the UIUC endowment had been misallocated with over $120,000 lost in the Global Savings Bank collapsed. Eventually, Spalding was investigated and convicted of embezzlement. But the university managed to survive with the state bailing out the missing funds. If you want to learn more about the context of this and how it fits into the university's financial history, this is discussed more in episode one. So next up, we have the Walrus. The Walrus was a newspaper on campus self-described as part of the New Left, and it was critical of the Vietnam War and racism. It was organized as a student organization on campus called the Walrus Anarchist Collective, and it seems from this picture I found they kind of jokingly put Mikhail Bakunin as an advisor. If you don't know, he's a famous Russian anarchist. And the Walrus was very clear about their political beliefs. They openly admitted that they were biased against things like Vietnam War, the draft, racism, and the police oppression of black people. But they thought it was important to share this left-wing perspective openly, and they did so in regular publications. At one point, the administration actually ordered them to stop distributing in the Illini Union, saying it broke campus rules. But they managed to continue their publication for many years during this era, with the first printing being done in the basement of the Red Herring restaurant, which some of you on campus may be familiar with. I think the Walrus provides an interesting look into what this protest movement and what this political culture looked like at the time among left-wing students. So the next thing on the iceberg is when Woodrow Wilson was offered the UIUC presidency. Before he became president of Princeton in 1902, governor of New Jersey, or the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson was offered the presidency of the University of Illinois. And he seriously considered this offer. In back and forth letters with his wife, he talked about the advantages and disadvantages of living in Urbana. And while he ultimately rejected it, I think it's very interesting to think about what would have happened to both Woodrow Wilson and to the University of Illinois if he accepted it. Would he have still continued to rise up the ranks, become maybe the governor of Illinois instead of the governor of New Jersey? Would he still have had the same impact on American politics as he did? It's hard to know, but it is an interesting historical counterfactual we can look at. So next on our list, we have the invention of talkies. Talkies is just a term for the forced film that had audio included, which was a very novel development in the early 1900s. And a Polish engineer from the University of Illinois, Joseph 
Taiko Sener, um, apologies for that mispronunciation, I'm sure, was the person who actually first showed electric sound on film. And while his version didn't become immediately commercially successful, it was still a very important development in the research and production of this kind of film. And it all came from an electrical engineering professor at the University of Illinois. So the last item on our iceberg is the University of Illinois' complicity in Japanese internment. To get an understanding of what the university's position was on this issue at the time, I think it's best to look at a direct quote from President Arthur Willard, who in March 20th of 1942 wrote that, quote, I do not believe the Board of Trustees and other authorities of this institution look with favor upon the admission of either Japanese aliens or Americans of Japanese ancestry. The internment of Japanese Americans is one of the darker periods of U.S. history during World War II, and it impacted many people at U of I, including people who would go on to attend the university. One of these people was Yuki Llewellyn. Llewellyn survived the internment of Japanese Americans as a young child and went on to become a very important figure in the University of Illinois, serving as the assistant dean of students and the director of RSOs here on campus. She is probably most well known though for a famous photo token of her when she was just a child being taken to the internment camps. This historical event impacted thousands of Japanese people and U of I is no exception to that. So that's it. That's the U of I history iceberg. I hope you found this interesting as I went through all the layers down all the way to the bottom. And I hope you continue to be interested in the content we're producing here at the Learning and Labor podcast. As always, the sources and citations are available in the description. And if you are listening to this in podcast form, I definitely encourage you to rate it. If you're listening to it on YouTube, definitely encourage you to give it a like and share the content further. So yeah, thank you so much for listening and bye-bye. Learning and Labor. Station WILL has carried a special program this week giving information about the University of Illinois. If you have been a listener to these broadcasts, you have heard more or less about what the university does how it does it, and what it hopes to do. Thank you, Dr. Willard. I'd like to conclude with a more personal question, if I may. And I was wondering, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either as a student here or in your route into the presidency? <laughs> no, it was from a very good friend of mine, a Jesuit priest, 
when I ask him, well, what is the best advice that you can give me? And he told me, well, to see clear, to feel deep, and to act efficiently.